Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Lowell Rickless is the CEO and founder of Traction Advising, which specializes in helping B2B SaaS companies with more than 5 million ARR get acquired. Lowell has been a startup co-founder, CEO, chairman, COO of a $120 million public company and the global VP of a Fortune 500 Rockwell. He is a global mentor, investor, board member, and CEO coach. His current business, Traction Advising, was thought out of his frustration when he was in the buyer's position. The investment banker model uses accounting finance people to try to sell. Don't put your CFO in charge of sales and marketing, so why would you put your banker in charge of selling your company? Lowell has seen the M&A from every perspective and wants to share what he's learned that will help you get more money for your business. Lowell, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is great. Yeah. So listen, as listeners can tell from just the bio, you have a different perspective on doing deals. You have extensive experience (laughs) from various aspects over many, many years. But before we get into all that, and we will, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is an M&A professional executive buyer, you know, all of the stuff you've done probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. The truth be told, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be able to play the electric guitar and and shred it on stage. And I just (laughs) lacked the talent and and the creativity to do that. But yeah, that was, it's still out there. Maybe there's still time. When I was younger, I decided I want to learn to play guitar. I think I made it through two or three lessons. I was like, no, not for me. And that, and that's not, and I'm usually pretty persistent at, at things, but I don't know. I, thought, <laughs> I guess I thought it was going to be easier than, than it was. <laughs> One more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Probably a car, probably my, my first car. My, my parents, you know, were, you know, they said you can have a car when you can afford to pay for the car, the insurance and the gas. And I think I was 16 and worked a couple jobs in high school and went to buy a car. I had $325 to buy a car and negotiate with a dealer. It, it didn't run. It needed a new engine, but I thought I could put a new engine in it. And it went sour. The guy agreed. And then when we were signing papers, he tried to add all these other fees in there. I got pretty upset. So that was my first experience with someone trying to make a deal turn out differently than I thought it would be simpler up front. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's funny. I think back when I was actually negotiating with deals for my first new car, as you know, I guess I was maybe in my 20s after graduating law school. And I remember there were two deals that was going back and forth. This is the day, you know, this is like before everything was online and you get into it. And the guy with the one dealership said to me, I think the other guy was like $325 lower or something like that, you know, and this is on a new car. So, uh, and the guy said, you're, you'd undercut me for 300 bucks. And, and I, and I sort of looked at him and I said, well, why wouldn't I? 
And the interesting part is like, I think back now, cause it, like, you know, I have a whole philosophy on negotiating when you're doing business deals, you're not actually trying to squeeze out the last dollar and beat somebody. But, mm -hmm. but what the lesson there was that is applicable to even, you know, what I consider authentic negotiating is really the why would, would I was like, I don't have any relationship with you whatsoever, right? Nor do I have with the other guy, right? Like I'm effectively negotiating for a commodity. Nobody's distinguished themselves to, to show me added value beyond price. So really, why wouldn't I? And I think that's even applicable in this day and age, right? You know, obviously there should be a number of other factors beyond price that affect things. But if you're not able to show that distinction or that value, then you're going to be judged on price. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it becomes a commodity. Yep. Okay. So uh, listen, there's so many places we can start, you know, but let's talk about the earlier years of getting into the deal game and, you know, and sort of what shape, what's become your views and your approach and your current company. Talk to us a lot about some of those early experiences and, you know, what are the stories there and what are the lessons? Yeah, it, it really was never my intent. I was originally an electrical engineer, computer science guy. I was brought into a technical sales training program, learned enterprise selling at Rockwell and, you know, had a career on the sales side, enterprise selling. So I knew, I knew selling well. I know salespeople well. I know the buying process, walking buyers through the buying process. And so I was a part of acquiring and integrating multiple companies at, at, at the first three companies that I was with. And along the way, I became pretty familiar with bankers and, and how they operated. But actually, we'll, we'll, let's come back to that. So your specific question, it really came down to probably the biggest was, I was working for a, a, a European company that was very strong in Europe. And we were talking strategy about, I was a chief operating officer, like, how do we become global? And I said, well, we really need to be a, a, a global platform. So we're not a tier two supplier. And I said, well, we need to buy some companies in the US, potentially some in Asia and decide that was a good idea. Go do that. And I really not acquired companies before I led the process, but it's pretty straightforward. Right. Like, how do you value the company? I say, well, how much would it cost for us to build it? That's one way to look at it, you know, and, and then what's the value of it not taking five years to build it, that sort of thing. So then we matched up P&Ls and said, well, you know, we probably don't need, you know, you look at synergies, you take out costs and then you know, we probably need to invest in this and, you know, we don't need two data centers. We probably need one. And so that was the first real eye opener. At first, I just thought, I don't know how to do this. And you just, you break it down into, into pieces and it's, yeah. it's, it kind of makes sense. And then there's the, the negotiating part of it, right? There's approaching someone and understanding a price, but behind the price, then you get into the structure and you get into all the due diligence and coming to an agreement on that and then papering it so the lawyers all work out is for amount of work. But that was the first, first big one to sink my teeth into, kind of get a feel for it. And what, you know, obviously you said, you know, you did, you broke it down. Was there anything that was surprising to you? Any big, big lessons from those early deals that, you know, you, you, you learned <laughs> along the way? You know, historically, so I've done, you know, multi-million dollar enterprise deals, like selling, you know, on behalf of like a Fortune 500 company. So you get this whole army of things behind you and the agreements are all standard. And it's not trivial. I mean, it's a big deal to sell. But, you know, when once we agreed on a, on a price, I, I kind of came back and I said, it's, it's done. I negotiated it. Like, let's, <laughs> let's let's sign a piece of paper and get started. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. You know, so the, I was a little bit naive as to the, the amount of diligence that was required or just a purchase agreement, how lengthy that was. Yeah. And I was impatient. I kind of thought, look, we agreed on Thursday, like Monday, I want to get going. And then, then it was months of mind numbing detail with the lawyers, which at the time I was, I was like, you guys are going to screw this deal up. You're killing this thing. Like this is way too much detail. Anyway, so we got through it. And now, obviously, very familiar with I've seen it many, many times. So okay. that was an eye opener. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. So you started to talk a little bit about what you saw about you know investment bankers in this process. So so let's talk about some of those early observations that have come to form a, a different approach that you have. Yeah, it kind of came down to they were all very, very smart. They wore very expensive suits, went to great schools, but but they they just I could just tell they were they were like meeting organizers and they were just running a structured process. Like they I, I you know again I I lived and breathed sales my entire life. They really didn't understand they didn't really understand the, the, the strategic initiative or how it would be how the, the, the entity that they're representing when they're, this is what was on the buying side would be integrated and didn't seem to care. They just wanted to get through the meetings and, and get the, the thing done. And it, it kind of dawned on me that these guys aren't, they're just not natural salespeople. They don't know how to walk a buyer through the buying process. They're following this, this, this structured process. And I, it kind of, as I thought about it, it, it just dawned on me that like you mentioned earlier, most people don't hire finance people in the sales roles. They just don't do that. They're typically not very good. In fairness, the best salespeople are going to be lousy finance people, right? They're going to fail. It's just a different skill set. No one is better or more important than the other ones. I don't mean to just, just pick on bankers, but I just realized they didn't add a lot of value to the process. You know, and they, they made a lot of money, but they didn't add a lot of value. So when it came time to sell the company that I'd co-founded, I decided I could apply, you know, the enterprise selling uh, to that. And it does make sense. I mean, truly, if your company is is complex or if it's can be based on multiples of EBITDA, right? If you've got intensive assets, if you've got inventory, if you've got work in progress, uh, you know, if you've got intercompany transfer costs, right? That can be very complex. If you've got foreign exchange, you know, you've got a complex animal and I get that. I've been a part of companies like that. Then it's primarily a financial instrument and you need to get the EBITDA right because it's going to be bought based on discounted future cash flow. So it truly is it's a glorified bond of some sort that people are going to buy. So I get that that's why bankers sell companies. It makes sense. But with SaaS companies, the financials are relatively simple. But in theory, the company is infinitely scalable, right? I'll say that in air quotes, infinitely scalable. So positioning it properly with the buyer, the buyer, you know, they might pay 3x or 4x or 5x, but properly positioned, they might pay 6 or 7 or 8 if they can build the business case because you can actually do that. Where multiples discount cash flow, it's it's pretty straightforward. You've got a spreadsheet. The numbers are what they are. But I'd say it's 80% selling. And it really isn't. So I look at selling as walking the buyer through the buying process. It's really understanding why do you want to buy this company? Like, how does this mean? I, I put my hat on. Like, why would I buy this company? Does it pass the sniff test? Like, this is does this fit a hole where it's obviously if they buy this, you know, the seller has 100 customers. The buyer has 50,000. It's the same title and profile. If they just do a simple marketing campaign to their 50,000 and get a 10% adoption, they're going to go from 100 to 5,000 clients, right? They're going to have 50 times the revenue. So you can paint that picture. You can give the CEO, the buyer, that kind of confidence. And it just genuinely, like, this makes sense. Like, you, you, you just can't screw this up. That's where it's just different. I just think it's very different than some of the traditional companies. And it's, it's true. So... So that was the thesis when we got into it. Turns out it is true that selling small software companies is more like selling a technology product, you know, enterprise selling, than it is a financial instrument. That's kind of the, our, our core premise. We've got operating experience. I've also been on the side, you know, I founded a company, you know, back of a napkin. How do we raise money? Who's going to buy this? Who's going to pay for it? You know, I've acquired companies and now we sell companies. So I also, when things get tense, I've kind of been in everyone's shoes. So when someone is upset, I kind of understand that you have every right to feel that way, that that makes sense, but put yourself in the other person's shoes and they're going to feel this way. So let's find a third way. We have a 90% success rate on closing our deals. You know, typically in the industry, it's 50%. And part of that is just defusing difficult situations and really sitting down and understands everyone's perspective. Assuming everyone has the right intent, 
how do you yeah. get behind that and find a way that satisfies everyone's concerns and gets to something that that's a win for everyone? So I want to hit that point, but I want to go back first to something you talked about. So one of the things I was thinking about in terms of the differentiation of, you know, smaller tech SaaS companies is that, and, you know, you said this in a different way, but, you know, just, just to, to throw, throw out some of the language on it and see if you agree. And it's why it really fits your model and skills is that SaaS companies, a lot of the times what you're selling is the future upside, right? Like you're not, you're not selling as much, as much off of historical financials. In fact, there are SaaS companies, right, depending upon how they started, whether, you know, they, that they may have gathered a lot of traction, but but purposely, you know, right, not not had a lot of revenue, at least in the beginning, right? And maybe they're starting to monetize, yep. and, you know, so so just the model is, and that combined with the ultimate scalability, you know, quote, unquote. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, in most traditional businesses, the buyers will quickly say, I'm not going to pay for future growth, Right. Like, yeah. I've got to go create that, so I'm not going to pay for future growth. I'm going to pay you for what you've done. But in SaaS sales, it's less, I'm not saying, you know, that they're just going to pay for anything. But, you know, but this, it's, a, it's right. a little, you know, there's a little more willingness to to bet on that upside because of the scalability, because of the um, the lack of significant cost compared to some businesses in doing in that scalability and, you know, compared to their ability to do that and just, just the way the industry is, right? I mean, I'm a, a, yeah. is that right? Absolutely. And that's where it's really interesting sometimes because if you've got a pure financial buyer, say it's a, it's a search firm, which are, are great buyers of companies, but they're going to, you know, a group of guys are going to pull their money and they're going to they're buy a company and then they're going to kind of usually organically, incrementally grow the business. Well, the future, they can bet on what the future would be, but they're going to invest to get there versus someone that, you know, again, like, you know, the 150,000 clients, the person with 50,000 clients, they're pretty confident that you know, can they double it? Can we, if you have a hundred, can we get a hundred out of our 50,000? I mean, come on, anyone can do that. So in many ways, it's just much easier for them to justify paying a higher price. And they don't even feel like it's a, it's a high price because in, in their mind, they've built a model that shows, you know, probably, you know, 10% per year adoption, 5,000 per year. So it just dwarfs what they're, they're paying for. But I also understand that, you know, if, if you're, you know, pure financial buyer or, you know, similar size company, you're going to buy it for its existing revenue and then the incremental revenue, but you're going to have to earn that revenue to get there. That's harder. And, and that might put more, more pressure on, on what the multiples might be. Yeah. No. Okay. So, and then on the sort of second point that you brought up, I'm, I'm really, really interested in this because, you know, I believe, listen, we, we, we help negotiate a lot of deals and, and, and unlike some attorneys, we actually get involved earlier because, you know, we're good at negotiating and start having buck out and negotiating all this stuff. Right. So we don't just come in and document deals. So we play this role as well. And sometimes, you know, we deal with bankers and we deal with consultants. But what you said before about being in the buyer's shoes, being in the seller's shoes, being like, you know, having all these perspectives and being able to understand it, you know, is really crucial because deals are done by humans, <laughs> right? Yeah. Humans, yeah. Oh, humans yeah. have all their own stuff going on. You know, you got organizational, cultural, you know, bureaucratic issues. You got individual people. So I, I don't want, I mean, I, I can go off on this. I've talked about it somewhere in the past, but I'd love you to delve a little more into that. Like, you know, because it can become complex depending on who the players are. They, they, they can have their own motivations that may align or not align fully with yeah. their companies. Uh, you know, talk about helping folks through that, that process with all yeah. the different factors. Well, as logical as we all like to think that we are, and, and many of us have some element of that, and most everyone has some element of it, and some are actually logical. And, and strategy and, you know, there's a lot of money at play. You know, we're at, at the end of the day, they're, they're, 
I think there's an emotional element behind almost every deal that, that gets done. And it might be, boy, this makes strategic sense because we've got a hole in our product portfolio. That all sounds very straightforward, but at the end of the day, someone wants to be successful. They want to get their bonus or they want it. The CEO wants to keep their job for a few more quarters. You know, it's publicly traded, but there's some level of, of um, and, and that's okay. So I think it's just under, part of it is understanding what those drivers are, like what the motivation might be. And, and just having worked in a, you know, Fortune 500 company for half of my career. And I understand some of the political dynamics that, that can go on, or I understand that, you know, I may be talking to the VP of product on this deal. And this person says, Hey, I'm going to buy your company. I know he's going to sit around a table with the VP of HR and he's going to sit down with a CTO. And, and at the end of the day, no CEO is going to allow a company to be acquired without them getting signed off from the board or approval from the board. And some level, they're going to put their butt on the line. So, so they're going to be involved. And I just know that it, in, in those meetings, any one person can raise their hand with an issue. You know, I, I think the page load times are too slow. This thing's not going to scale, right? And, and that can kill a deal. So yeah. I call it like whack, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, that, that, that thing that you put there. It's, in some ways, you just need to keep tabs on people on a, on a pretty regular basis, take their temperature. Before that thing takes on a life of its own, that that potential issue takes a life of its own and the deal is sunk and you try to resurrect it and everyone's given up on it and moved on because they thought that was a fatal flaw. So understanding those things in real time, but also understanding, you know, really from the start, we just think we call them fireside chats. Once we qualify a buyer, we'll have a fireside chat with the CEO and I encourage the CEO or we will prompt the buyer to say, because rather than just answer questions, start off with, why do you want to be by this company? Like what piqued your interest? Why are we having this conversation? Like, and it's, it's fascinating because often they'll start off with, uh, oh, well, well, we built something like this. You know, it sucked. No one wanted to use it. Our churn was high. So we're fascinated to find out why your churn levels are so low for a similar product. And our biggest clients are asking for this. We don't have it. Our core business is at risk. All right. So then you go into the conversation, you realize, okay, I understand where they, and then you can talk about how it fits into, in the, into their worldview rather than just blindly showing up on a call and saying, well, here's what I've got. It does this and it does this, and it does this, and it does this. which is the class, which kind of back to sales technique, a typical salesperson will show up and say, let me tell you about this, yeah. where the, the Eagles, the best salespeople will show up and say, tell me what keeps you up at night. What are you struggling with? And then and they're talking about their problems. At the end of the day, you're trying to help the buyer be successful. I'm going to help you be successful with this thing. And that's what everyone wants is to be successful. And if someone's offering to help them and not push something on them, they, uh, they're usually more receptive. Yeah, it's fascinating the way you, you, know, you make this because you know, this relationship between, especially enterprise selling, because I think there are more elements of enterprise selling that, that transfer over. But any kind of selling, really, I'm this, yeah, I mean, the bad salespeople come in and, uh, you know, and start talking about them and the product and you know the good ones ask questions right and find the pain points and solve a problem right but you know and how that's transferable because because to some extent you know, we talk on this podcast all the time that organic growth and inorganic growth are different that sale that we actually don't we don't have salespeople on this podcast because this is about deal-driven growth which we consider the organic side although salespeople often call their sales deals i'm not judging that it's just not yeah, we, it's yeah. not the purpose of this podcast, right? There are other yeah. ones that, that talk about organic growth and sales and marketing and that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that things aren't, aren't transferable. And it's fascinating to me how, you know, you think about that and, and you know, and apply these uh, skills over to the to the deal side, because they, they, you know, you're right. I mean, they they really they really are applicable. And the ability to, to listen and ask questions and figure out what the why, the motivation 
you know, of the other side is 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 a key thing. I talk about my negotiating book on anything, and it's certainly a key thing, you know, in in deal making. And the fact that people don't do that in in so many areas, when I when I speak to attorneys, oh, I mentor a train, for example, in my business, attorneys are horrible. I mean, they they're, they're so trained to you know to go in and talk about their credentials and the deals they've done and the clients they're representing, whatever. And there's all kinds of science on how, first of all, if, if people like you better, the more you listen to them, right? Like yeah. that's, you know, it's just science yeah. on that, right? You know, yeah. they actually think more highly of you the more you listen to them as opposed <laughs> to the more you talk about your credentials and how much experience you have. Plus, of course, yeah. you, get, you get to hear if you answer the right questions, really, frankly, what they want to hear. And I don't mean in a bad way. Like I always said to my folks, listen, I'm not going to ever be inauthentic or, or not genuine. I'm only going to present what's genuine for me. But there's a range of things I could talk about, right, that genuinely we could provide value on. But the client may only care about two or five of the 30 we could talk about, right? So why not figure right. out which ones they want to hear about first before you start talking, which is what exactly what you were talking about. And the same thing applies, you know, in, 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 the, in the deal world. I mean, I've given examples in the past on this podcast on deals that have been saved because we figured out that we needed to let the founder keep an office because the thing he feared most is not being relevant or having to be home with the spouse or whatever it was, you know? Yeah, this figuring out the why and then, you know, and then, and then designing to it is so crucial. Yeah, 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 that's funny. It is true though, yeah, but people, people want to be heard. Yeah, and, and if you just start talking about things they don't care about, they're just waiting for you to stop talking, right? Yeah, they do. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So talk a little bit more specifically about your model. I mean, we've alluded to you know, between the bio and, and sort of leading up to the differentiator from what, you know, investment bankers and your enterprise selling background and all that kind of stuff. But let's talk more specifically about, you know, your, your model in traction and who your ideal clients are and who you work with and that kind of stuff. Yeah, just kept, I don't mean, know how much detail you want me to get into, but, you know, we, we target B2B SaaS. We're, we're pretty clear with three to 20 million in ARR is kind of the sweet spot. We've, we won't typically go lower, but sometimes we'll fall in love with a business or a founder. It's a space that we just, we, we like really well. And we've done some deals that are larger as well. But so that's on the revenue side, three to 20 million in annual recurring revenue. You know, we'll sit down, we, we're, we're pretty selective. So, you know, we're a team of seven. My business partner is in London. You know, senior partners are on every, every call, just like this. That's the CC, we don't, we don't delegate to others. Got a uh, pretty sharp team, but we we do our own kind of rubric. We do our own analysis, just like the buyers would. You know, what's what's the retention look like? What's the customer concentration look like? What's the growth look like? You know, the PL, just any risk factors. We want to make sure that that the the outcome expectations are in alignment. You know, if we think the outcome is going to be fifty, and and they say, yeah, they wouldn't accept anything less than two hundred. You know, we may just wish them well. You know, maybe right. they'll get it. You know, but but at some point, we don't want to. You know, we have. We have finite bandwidth, you know, so we, we're just, we're pretty careful about who we take on and we want, you know, pretty careful. And often, you know, we'll, we'll work with people for, for years. You know, people have questions about what should I, you know, I'm meeting with a CEO later this month. 
actually next month, I guess it's not July yet, 350 employees, big, big business, but a year or two away and just wants to know how to position the company properly before they sell it. You know, I tell people it's like the house analogy. I don't know what your house looks like, but most people, there are things that they could do, you know, before they sell it and they'll, they'll get more for it. A little bit of paint, a little bit of landscaping, maybe a little bit of lighting. So there are a lot of things in your company, particularly with SaaS companies. You, know, you work really hard to found a company, to raise money, to get your first dollar revenue. There are some relatively simple things compared to how hard it is to, to, to get a business going that can bump you know, 10 to 20% more in the valuation. It's not always easy, but just to get your metrics in line. The metrics matter quite a bit. But our, our process, so, you know, we'll, we'll get to know people, multiple meetings, ideally in, in, in person, but often over Zoom, right? Especially through COVID. Sure. And then once we're, we're aligned, you know, we'll, we'll research buyers. Again, that's kind of driven from the mindset I had when I ran sales for companies. The thing that used to keep me up at night was that we have this really cool solution that I believe in. And there's someone somewhere in the world that needs our solution, is sure. looking to solve it, and doesn't know that we exist. So I used to just feel like I have to get our message in front of everyone, every company with the right profile and the person with the right title. So they're just aware of us, right? I mean, they may not be interested, most won't be interested in active, but someone is, and they're the easiest people to sell to because it, it solves a kind of an active pain. So we kind of do the same thing. We do extensive research. I mean, a lot of, and I, I feel like I pick on bankers a lot. They serve a great role, they do great jobs. So I don't, I don't really mean to, but, but they often, you know, they're filling their funnel, 50% close rate. They want to close it quickly or move on. And they've got, they, they talk a lot about, oh, we've got the relationship. So they've got their regular buyers or companies that buy on a pretty regular basis, which is fine, which is good. That's valid. But often there may be another 20 or 30 or 40% in the buyer pool who have never done a deal before or one or two. So just by definition, they're not a part of that active buyer pool. So we do a tremendous amount of research to find those companies, get the contacts, the right, the right contacts, people reach out to them, engage. We create materials, again, that's more like marketing materials, less the two-tone stem that people have seen, you know, that's a hundred pages long. We really try to craft the message and tell a story that would be appealing to a buyer. So a buyer quickly understands how this could add value. And then we do the outreach. Again, we'll, we'll qualify, try to understand, you know, we'll look at how many employees they have. Are they big enough to buy? What's their acquisition history look like? You know, do they have a corp dev function? And, and then, you know, have a fireside chat, get to know each other. Then we, you know, indications of interest, narrow that down to two or three, deeper diligence, LOIs, purchase agreement, attorneys do the heavy lifting, and then sign and close. Everyone smiles for the camera. Money gets wired to the bank. That's the highlight. I love it. And, you know, in terms of, you know, having the, you know, the, the, the niche that you're in, what is, well, actually, let me take a step back. So, you know, I, and I, I know you've been careful not to, you know, to, to, you've been on the one hand picking on investment bankers, but also acknowledging that they play, play, play a role. But if some, some might say, wait, it's, it sounds like you're pretty much acting like an investment banker, maybe with a more of a marketing and sales approach to it, but are there other differentiators? You know, you don't have to give us details in terms of numbers, but I mean, do you charge differently? Are there success fees or, you know, are there other distinctions between the way you work as opposed to investment bankers? The feedback that I've gotten, I mean, we compete against investment bankers, right? We're M&A advisors, investment bankers. It's, you know, we don't, we don't raise money. We're purely focused and, you know, we don't sell pharmacies, you know, we don't sell wire companies, you know, we're, we're, we're purely focused. So it's like, it's kind of like if you tear your ACL, you know, most advice, most people will tell you, 
is I don't care where the guy went to school. I don't care what he did. If the guy does 150 ACLs a year, you're fine. They're going to do a good job. It's like a machine. If the guy does everything and he does one a year, you're in trouble. Like it, it's, it's yeah. not going to go well. So, yeah. but our, our fees are compatible. Mostly whether we win or lose, most people tell us our fees isn't why we lost. It, yeah. it isn't why we, why we won. So it's, it's, it's similar. So, I mean, this isn't on the fence, but we also get involved on the, I mean, there, there are hundreds of little things that come up when you're doing a deal. I mean, everyone thinks about like how much am I going to get for what's evaluation and structure is the next big thing that they, that they sure. think about. But there, there are a lot of little things that come up where often a CEO, they were busy before they were running a process. Now they're in a process or bombarded this stuff. And a lot of times these things come up and they just get overwhelmed. And, like the, and to just have a trusted, someone that you can trust say, does this matter? Like, should I care? Is this yeah. typical? And just, just someone that can just say, it's not a big deal. No, or, you know, a whole back, whole back standard, you know, 10%, it, it happens all the time. You know, it's because they say, well, it was a bait and switch. They said it was like cash. Well, it's cash, but there's, but the whole back is standard. Every deal has a whole back for indemnification. It's fine. Yeah. Don't sweat. You know, so just kind of, you're talking them back from the ledge quite sure. a few times. So we're, we're, we're always available for that. Or even, I mean, we don't do tax or legal or, but we can, we can kind of give indications of what we've seen or what's, what's typical. Uh, yeah. And especially when you do the equivalent of 150 ACLs, right? Like you, you know, the market, you know, that particular niche, you know, the market, you're not, you know, you, you can really, you really have that kind of experience to say, Hey, no, no, this is, this is standard, or this is where the market is, or this is, you know, outside of, you know, this is something we should negotiate. Yep. And then even, I mean, as many deals we've been through, it's amazing how it's, there's still a bit of an art to it when it comes yeah. down to, to the end, there, there are still things that come up where you scratch your head and say, okay, haven't seen that before. So, but then it's, but that's in some ways, it's kind of the fun part. You're like, all right, well, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Like, okay, that's what you want. And you're saying, no, like that's a deal breaker. Well, let's, let's talk about it. like, what's behind that. Like, like, let's dig into this, right? That's, I guess that's part of what I like about it is it's the, that strategic part. It tickles your brain. It's not just running through a process. It's just thinking about, all right. That's a funny one. Sometimes I just think I don't see a way around it, but then you, know, you sleep on it and you're thinking through it. It's like, I got an idea. What if we did that? What if we tried this and yeah. then this? And then like, I, I think that might work. You know, so you're kind of trying to like build those bridges back to, to keep it going. Love it. And if you don't have one, it's fine. I'll go to my next question. But anything come to mind where, you know, on a particular deal with something was stuck and you were able to find a creative solution to get it back in? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, one that, that comes to mind was a large publicly traded acquirer was buying a small, mid-sized company. There were, there were competitors, but one was much, much larger, like multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. And there, there was concern about the IP. And, and the buyer said, well, we, we are going to do a code review. And the seller said, that's our secret. I mean, we're going to show them everything. And, and then, then we've got no... And it was a, it was the deal. Like both sides were like, well, we're not buying the company if we can't see it. And these guys were like, well, we're not going to let them see it until they they buy it. And so, you know, I had to sit down and, and kind of tell the buyer, look, hey, if I said if Microsoft wanted to come and look at your IP, would you show it to him? And he's like, no, we're not showing our code. This is, you know, we compete with with I can't say why, but this is where we compete. I said, well, that's how that's how they feel. Like that's who you are. And they kind of said, okay, all right, I, I can understand. I'm no longer like mad, like I can't believe they would say that. And then you know, talking to the the seller. Say, hey, if you bought a smaller company, you know, you're effectively buying the IP. Like, would you really buy them not seeing the code? They're like, no, I wouldn't. I said, okay, well, that's kind of, that's where they are. And then, you know, and then we, we kind of went back and forth about 
they, the buyer took an employee that signed an agreement that they wouldn't do any product development for two years. And they, they and we used a computer that was, that was not connected to the internet and, and they were supervised code review. And so they found a way yeah. that the buyer got the, the, the comfort that they needed and, and the seller had the security that they needed. And that was, you know, that was tense. I mean, but, but in the end, both sides were perfectly happy with the way it worked out. That's great. So, great example. Great yeah. example. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the market, right? You know, so obviously, particularly in the in the SaaS space where you focus, you know, what's what's going on? Because obviously, you know, in uh, I mean, I'll talk more general trends, but you know, we we have seen and we do we do deals in a number of industries, but financial services and tech are our two biggest sectors. And you know, for I mean, let's go back the last couple of years have been crazy. I mean, the deal volume was, you know, was ridiculous. The private equity, yeah. money, you know, and, and the money in the space was huge. And, you know, then obviously we had some headwinds with the uh, interest rates going up, cost of capital going up, uh, inflation, which is now coming back down, but, you know, some uncertainty in the market, all that kind of stuff. And we were sort of wondering how it was going to affect things for us. And we, you know, listen, we, we, we are not a, we're not a micro cut. You can't extrapolate, you know, out necessarily from us. But we were crazy busy for for a few years, and then the first quarter slowed down a bit. And but the second quarter is ridiculous now again. So what are you seeing, uh, particularly in the SaaS space, in terms of uh, volume of deals, in terms of structure, in terms of valuations? You know, we've seen generally some 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 softening on valuations, a little bit of restructuring, but still historically pretty good. What are you seeing? So what we've seen, the area that we play in are, are you know companies that are they're typically linear growth companies. They're not the hockey stroke. If they're if they're hockey stick growth, my advice is if you can keep this up, you should because it'll be worth a lot more money. Like you don't want to right. sell. So right. so in that case, the multiples didn't get that wild. They definitely bumped up. They ticked up a little bit. Yep. So they didn't have as far to fall. They weren't doing the crazy you know twenty extra. I've seen somewhere in the hundred, two hundred, like the fundraiser. I just it was just. It was crazy. I just, I couldn't in my wildest dream imagine how that could ever pay off. So it hasn't come back down that far, but we've definitely seen strategics with the focus on profitability, conserve cash, and definitely much more conservative. So definitely less interest on the strategic side, private equity, like you, know, you mentioned with the increased interest rates, with the leverage, their, you know, their models don't work quite as well. So I think what's interesting is both VC-backed companies, PE-backed companies are We've seen deals where there's a mix of cash and stock, which we'd not seen before. And I think some of that is the the value is, some might argue, inflated, or the value was was higher anyway. It's sure. subject to. And so they're using a mix of that stock and some cash, ideally, I think cash with maybe less leverage, so they can put some money to work, to roll things up because their own investors, right? They want to raise new funds and there's not been as much liquidity for their investors as well. So I think they're trying to bundle things up with a mix of cash and stock. And I think you'll see a, a push for IPO or much larger bundle deals in, in Q4 and Q1. I mean, that's kind of what, what I see. You know, in our lens is, I don't say it's anecdotal, but, you know, we see handfuls, but it seems consistent with what we hear from others as well. I don't know. I'd love to hear more about what, what you see as well. No, no, it's, it's, it's been interesting. Uh, like, yeah, we've seen some softening in multiples, but not like, but, but not, you know, like just a little bit. And, and more of what we've seen is actually, um, you know, le- a little less upfront, a little more back end, de-risking, you know, the deal for the buyer, you know, in ter- you know, yeah. a little more subject to, you know, sort of may- maybe just some contingencies on it, whatever. But you know, but you know, so we've se- seen only a slight drop in 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 valuations, but more, but more push to the back end, just to just to hedge, you know, on on where things might be going. 
Yeah, I've, I've always stressed to people that look, anecdotally, you'll see companies that burn a lot of cash that get big multiples, but but the vast majority of the deals that I see, they're profitable. So, and now yeah. I've really seen less risk tolerance on the buyers where they're indemnifying for if you lose clients. Basically, they're, they're saying, hey, if this business becomes unprofitable, we're going to claw things back. So yeah. where they used to be more focused on like top line revenue, it's break even, and then together we can grow even more. So more, it's still a growth focus, but it's growth, it's profitable growth focused. Yeah, yeah. So they'll they'll give you the upside earn out, but they want to claw back if on the downside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing that as well. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that sellers make in, in these kind of deals? That's a really good question. I think, I mean, I don't know if it's a mistake. I think the most common thing that we'll see is particularly companies with less than 10 million in ARR, they often don't have, they don't have a CFO, you know, yeah. and their financials are, are relatively simple. And, you know, they may just have a, you know, part-time bookkeeper and what's in QuickBooks just isn't accurate. You know, and so what they claim or the numbers that that we get, and often it's cash-based financials, right? It's not accrual. So, and sometimes they've got some major shifts in revenue and sometimes, you know, they come in at 40% growth and then, you know, you do the QV and it's like, well, actually that revenue expense is quite like, so actually it's more like 15, 20%, you know, that's a pretty big deal. You know, it's like, oh, we thought we were profitable 20%. It's like, well, that's not really, so that that's the biggest thing I see is sometimes like getting that, getting that right. The other thing, again, I don't know if it's a, a mistake, but it, it can become tense is, you know, software startups, you know, it's three people in a coffee shop, you know, working part-time, you know, you're just happy to be doing it. You're all excited trying to get this thing going. You don't have IP assignment, right? So that's a big deal. And often it doesn't come to the 11th hour when you're closing. It's like, well, we need the IP assignment letter from Joe. Well, Joe hates me. Joe left and it wasn't pretty. Joe's not signing anything, right? And that's, well, Joe wrote this code that we're buying. And, it, and so so that can become pretty tense. So I encourage people, you know, clean that stuff up early. And I I, I, I had one CEO actually said, you know, after it closed, he said, you know what? He said, when I start my next company, the first thing I'm going to do is build a data room. And I'm, I'm going <laughs> to make sure that all our employment agreements, IP assignment. So yeah, kind of financials IP, kind of back off this stuff. But, but, but it's important to get a deal done. Now we've seen that IP one a lot, you know, with the disgruntled or past employee or partner or whatever it is. It's amazing how how common uh, how common that one could be. And you know, we I, we sort of chuckle when the CEO said he's going to build the next company, he's going to build a data room. But it's actually it's actually a smart thing to do. I mean, you know, this this concept of of being able to build a company as if you're going to sell it, whether you're going to sell it or not, you know, that's that that's sort of you know a, a, a detail another approach on it, and it makes sense because it saves. I mean, you know, listen, obviously one of the things we do with our clients, we go in and do a lot of pre-due diligence and, and the, the accountants, financial people should do the same so that, yeah. you know, you discover if the margins really aren't 40%, they're 20%. We discover that before you presented 40% to the, uh, yeah. <laughs> to the buyer, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause you, know, you get a finite amount of credibility in a deal, right? And you know, exactly. and you've got, I call it negotiating capital. And I always tell people like, like, like don't give a laundry list of 17 things that you want. Like, because because the first two are worth five times as much as the next 15 that are on the list. And sometimes, but but getting that through, it's like, yeah, but I want another $10,000 a year. It's like, yeah, but you're asking for 3 million here and 10,000 a year here. Like that doesn't, you know, those, I know it feels like anyway. So, but sometimes just kind of walking through that kind of stuff is can be challenging. Yeah, no, it's a hundred percent, hundred percent. Before I ask you my final two questions, any any other thoughts you have you want to share, whether it's about the market, you know, you know, deals, your company, or anything we haven't covered? 
I, I, the only thing I'll throw out there is I, I think that the feedback I get from buyers is there, there's, 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 there's not a lot of quality deal flow right now. There, there, a lot of the companies that have to sell are kind of coming up. A lot of the companies that, that are heads down, focus on profitability, or I think some, some may be thinking, let's wait till the multiples pop back up. Not sure they're going to come back up wildly. I think that was a, a kind of anomaly, but I think there's a backlog of companies Answer to go to market again. I think Q4, Q1. I think I think you see it pick up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's always I've talked about it on the on this uh, show recently. You know, you, you run into these periods if you've been around as long as you and I have. You know, you see it. You always run into these periods where the market yeah. goes, and then there's a disconnect. I mean, you know, pe people are less familiar with the M&A markets. You see it in the housing market, right? Uh, you know, it's the same thing, right? That's a, you yeah. Know, at some point, you know, sellers. I had a certain expectation of what the market was. And if it drops and they have this bigger number in their mind and and they don't, and it takes them a while for to adjust, they hope it's going to come back up. But yep. then at some point, you know, they're realistic and they have other drivers that have them want to sell, whether it's a house or a business. And and they start to realize, well, I don't think the market's coming back up, you know, so quickly. And, uh, you know, so you, you, but you always have this gap period where the expectations to misalign because the, the buyers always often adjust to those factors more quickly than the sellers psychologically and you know and then deals slow for a while until until they they come back together you know in terms of yeah. that makes sense the new normal all right but um before i ask you my final question if people want to find out more about you and your company what's the best place for them to go uh, you can go to our website www.tractionadvisingoneword.com linkedin we've got a bunch of information on linkedin as well kind of a Unique name, it's a mouthful, a little reckless, but if, if, if there's anything good about it, I guess there's only one out there. There's, there's, there's <laughs> That's the good news, right? Uh, yeah. You yeah. don't have to sift through the it, 25, but which one is he? <laughs> <laughs> or you can email me directly. It's just Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L -L -L, at tractionadvising.com. And if people have questions that are curious, we, we I enjoy the conversation. I love hearing about people's journey. I'm happy to answer any questions. You're not going to get a hard sell or push, so feel free to reach out. Excellent. Well, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world for all people from oppression to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Wow. It, well, it's the, the freedom. I, part of it, for me, being an entrepreneur, it's the, the freedom. And I've, I've done this nomadic mentors like volunteering around the world, but freedom to start a business easily without a lot of interference. I mean, it's very, very easy you know, for 150 bucks, you can start a business and you can be in business. And that's just not the case in a lot of countries. So that's one of the things that I really appreciate is that it's easy for people. And then we tend to track some of the best and brightest from around the world to come here and start up companies. And it's a, and we're free. We've got a, a large market. If you live in a small country, you may build the exact same product, but generally, you know, if your country has 30 million people, that's kind of the reach that, that you'll get if you don't branch out in the U S You've got this massive marketplace with a fair amount of wealth. So easy to spread. It's a good place to start. Love it. Lowell, thank you so much for bringing a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up, 
for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.